So thanks a lot. It's really a pleasure to be here and to talk this morning on the standard model, the Large Hadron Collider and the Higgs boson. So let me begin the first part of my talk to review something that most of you will know about, about which is the standard model of particle physics and also in connection with previous lectures of this morning that you have had. So James mentioned the quantum field theory, right? The standard model is perhaps the greatest success of this very important theory, which is quantum field theory. So, but first of all, let me mention that this is really an ex extremely exciting time to be a particle physicist, right? So in, in the last years, particle physics has been in the headlines several times. And this is fully justified, right? The discovery of the Higgs boson at the Large Hadron Collider in 2012 is the most important discovery in our field in the last 25 years, right? Because it completes the extremely successful standard model, but at the same time, it opens a large number of crucial questions for our field that we need to answer, right? And the Large Hadron Collider will play a central role in exploring this high energy frontier <coughs> for, the last, for the next 20 years. So what is the standard model? The standard model is the theory which ex explains a wide variety of microscopic phenomena into a single unified framework, which is quantum field theory. It describes all elementary particles and their interactions with the only exception of, of gravity. So what is the standard model composed of? First of all, it describes matter, right? It describes uh, protons, electrons, and also other, other particles. Its content is composed, organized in quarks, which experience a strong interaction, and leptons, which uh, only experience a weak and, and electromagnetic interaction. There are six quarks. They are called up, down, uh, strange, charm, bottom, and top. There are also uh, six leptons. Uh, the, the uh, six leptons, the electron you're familiar with, but it also has two heavier counterparts, the muon and the tau, and the tau lepton. And also there are three neutrinos, which are massless, electron neutrino, muon neutrino, and tau neutrino. And then there are the interactions which uh, relate these particles among them. And these forces are governed by the uh, exchange of the so-called uh, force carriers. And there is one force carrier for each of the interactions, the electromagnetism is based on the exchange of photons, this you are familiar with. The strong interaction, as I will explain, is characterized by the exchange of gluons. And then the weak force is defined by the, by the exchange of W and Z bosons. And the last ingredient, which was found uh, only three years ago, was the Higgs boson, which is really essential because it's the, the way in which all the particles in this figure here can acquire a mass because this mass is forbidden by the symmetries of the Lagrangian. So let me begin by recalling where all this comes from, right? So let's go to the early 30s. And after a number of very important discoveries, the electron, uh, the proton, the neutron, and the positron, we had more or less a complete you know, understanding, a complete description of particle physics, right? We had the atom. We, had, we understood the atom as composed by an <coughs> atomic nucleus of protons and neutrons, and then all the electron, electron layers. So it seems that more or less, things were in place. Of course, there were important questions, but some people thought perhaps there are minor issues. However, the discovery on the muon of 37, which is a heavier electron, basically, was completely unexpected, right? Nobody expected the, the, the muon. As some people put it, who ordered that? Why do we need a heavy electron? Where does this fit in the scheme of things? And to make things worse, then a plethora of new strongly interacting particles called pions, kaons, was soon discovered. So as you can see in this time and here, so at by 33, we had the neutron and the positron, but then we had the muon, pions, kaons, and then you know, a large array of other particles, lambdas, epsilons. And 
the question is, can we make sense of this, 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 really this situation? And moreover, many important conceptual questions were left unanswered. For example, if you have protons together in the atomic nuclei, they have Coulomb repulsion, right? So they should be, they should, atomic nuclei should explode. Why atomic nuclei are stable? What holds together protons in the nucleon? What is the origin of weak interactions which drive radioactive decays? So why, at, why atoms decay radioactively? We have no theory to explain this. Moreover, all these particles are fundamental. They are composite. Are they, do, do they have any structure? And uh, even more important, which is the suitable mathematical language to describe particle physics? Is quantum mechanics? Is, is something else? This was not clear to many people. Now, let me begin with the first interaction. This is quantum, quantum electrodynamics. This was well. This is this is the, the quantum version of electromagnetism. So, electromagnetism was discovered by many people in the late uh, 19th century, and it describes the interactions of charged particles via the exchange of of photons. However, making sense of quantum chromodynamic, sorry, making sense of electromagnetism once we include quantum mechanics was extremely challenging. Why? Because you had the problem of infinities. When we, we, we try to compute corrections, quantum corrections to electromagnetism, we encounter infinities. And how to deal with these infinities was a theoretical tour de force, which took several years until the formulation of quantum electrodynamics was achieved. And QED is a very beautiful theory, because starting from simple rules, which are called the, the Feynman rules, we can compute any terms as an expansion in powers of the strong, uh, the weak coupling, the electromagnetic coupling alpha is basically the electron charge square. So this is a small number, so you can compute the leading term, and then sub subsequently add more and more complicated terms, each of which will be in principle smaller than the other. So you can achieve an arbitrary precision by computing more and more complicated diagrams. So if I put together you know, all these lines and all these vertices, and I do the integrals, in principle I can achieve arbitrary accuracy in any, in any process. And actually, some of the most precise calculations that we have ever done have been done with quantum electrodynamics. For example, there is a quantity which is called the anomalous uh, magnetic moment of the muon, which in QED is known to an accuracy better than one part in one billion. So imagine this. We can compute something with this incredible precision, and it agrees with experiments. So it's really a, a major success of, of quantum field theory. Of course, this is not an easy task. One has to compute extremely complicated diagrams, which involve complex integrals. But in principle, starting from these rules, everything else is fully, is fully predicted. Now, what, what about the quarks? How, how, they were dis how they were discovered? Well, in the beginning of last century, uh, uh, the Rutherford experiments discovered the inter internal structure of, of atoms. How this, this was discovered? Well, so the, in the Rutherford experiment, there was a thin, a thin foil of, of gold, and then uh, to have, this was bombarded with alpha particles, which basically helium nuclei, and we looked at, uh, Rutherford looked at, at the deflection of these of this this alpha particles, right? And by looking at the scattering angles of these alpha particles after uh, interacting with, the, with atoms, they realized that the atom is not, say, like a pancake. The atom is really, all the, all the positive charge is concentrating in a very small air, uh, volume, which is the at atomic nuclei, and then the electrons are around this, this nuclei. So this was, of course, are uh, impressive discovery. In, very interestingly, 70 years later, the, the very same technique was used to discover quarks. <coughs> what did we do? Well, in this case, instead of using alpha particles against atoms, we use very energetic electrons and we bombarded uh, protons, right? And by looking at how the electrons were deflected when they scattered with the protons, we discovered that uh, in the proton, the, the charge is, again, is also point-like. It's concentrated in small volumes. And this 
what this is what led to the discovery of, of, of quarks in the in the proton by the same mechanism as the discovery of the atomic nuclei in the in the Rutherford experiment. Of course, the concept of quarks had been known for a while, right? Since since the, since the 60s, we had the constituent quark model, which allowed to describe all the all the hadrons as as composed by these these hypothetical particles, which are called the quarks. For example, the proton can be understood as, a com as composed by two up quarks and one d quark, and the neutron as one up quark and two d quarks. However, these quarks were very peculiar, right? To begin with, they had fractional charge. So the charge was either two thirds or minus one third. And we had never seen a particle with fractional, fractional charge. So many people were skeptic, and they thought that perhaps it's just a mathematical trick to organize hadrons, but they, no they don't really have physical existence. However, after the slack experiments that I've mentioned here, people realize that they are not only a good mathematical description, they, are really, they have a physical existence and describe the, the structure of hadrons. So with just up, down, and strange, we could describe essentially all known hadrons. So again, we had a very interesting surprise when in the 73, two, well, 73 and 77, two new heavier quarks were soon discovered, the charm quark with a mass of about 1.5 GeV and the bottom quark with a mass of about uh, 5 GeV. So this is the, in this plot here, you can see the, the discovery of the charm quark. So how these things were discovered, we had an electron-positron collision, right? And we vary the mass, the energy of the collision. And at some point we see that there is a peak, right? This peak is indicating that in this collision, there is a particle which has been formed with a mass around 3 GeV. This particle was called the J psi, which corresponds to a meson of a charm anti-charm pair. So this was the discovery of the charm quarks in, in 73. And there is an even heavier top quark with a mass of 175 times the proton mass. So it's a single particle, which is almost 200 times heavier than the proton, had to wait until 1995 to be discovered. Because since being so massive, we need very high energetic colliders to be, to be able to, to detect it. Now, so I've, I've talked about quantum electrodynamics. It's a field which is perturbative. I can compute terms because the, the coupling is small. I can just compute terms as an expansion in orders of this, this coupling. So, and this, of course, is, makes the theory very predictive. I have my Feynman rules. I can draw the diagrams for any process. I can compute the, the corresponding cross-sections. However, the hadrons interact strongly, right? The interaction is characterized by, it's like it's, it's coupling is something which is, is, is very strong. So it seems that the model of QED of a perturbative quantum field theory is not applicable and that we need something else and people work in these various extensions of Reke theory or uh, S-matrix. However, a, a breakthrough came in, in 1973 when it was realized that there was a, a theory that could describe the strong interaction at the same time be a perturbative theory. It's called quantum chromodynamics. And quantum chromodynamics has a very peculiar feature, which is the following. This is the strength of the strong interaction. So this is the value of the QCD coupling as a value, as a function of the energy, right? In renormalizable quantum field theories, the value of the couplings runs with the energy. As this is the renormalization group equations. Now, if you look at low energies, for example, well below the proton mass, this coupling is very large and the theory is strongly interacting as all the data suggested. However, once we look at very high energies, for example, 100 times the proton mass, the theory becomes weakly, weakly coupled because alpha s is a small number. And in this regime, when alpha s is a small, we can use exactly the same techniques as for QED to do 
to compute, predic to compute predictions for physical observables. And this was verified to very, very high accuracy. So again, quantum field theory is the right language to describe not only the electromagnetism, but also the strong interaction. So this strong interaction, so if QED has the photon, in the case of uh, QCD, we have the gluon, which is the particle that mediates this, this interaction, and is responsible of binding together the quarks in the, in, in, in the proton. And this you can understand very easily. So we said that the strong interaction is something that the coupling grows with the energy, right? We know that in, in quantum mechanics, growing with the energy, so smaller energies correspond to larger distances. Now, imagine they have two quarks, and they, have, they are very close together. If they are close, this corresponds to uh, basically large energies, so the coupling is, is small. But if I try to pull them together, so I pull them apart, sorry, their distance will increase. At uh, this point, this corresponds to lower energies, and the coupling will become strong. So the fact that the QCD coupling is, lar is large at small energies, for large distances, implies that we cannot have quarks uh, isolated. They will always be bound together, because this coupling is, is very large. Now, the gluon was also discovered, uh, follow was also verified experimentally its existence in 1977. And this is called three jet events. So uh, the theory of the strong interaction predicts that if we collide electrons and positrons, some of the events that we will see in our detector will have kind of a Mercedes uh, shape. So you have two, two quarks here, and then there's a gluon recoiling. And this is exactly what was seen. So this would be a quark jet, quark jet, and the gluon jet. So again, this provided an extra evidence that, that QCD was the right theory for the strong, for the strong interactions. Now, going to the, the weak interactions. Weak interactions are something that was having known for a while because it's allowed to explain the radioactive beta decay, beta decay of, of nuclei. Now, in the 1930s, Fermi explained the beta decay of nuclei by a four-body interaction. Right? So basically, you have an, a neutron, and this neutron decays into a proton, a, neut a neutrino, and the electron in a four-body interaction. So therefore, the, the atomic number of this nucleus will change by one unit, as, as verified in beta, beta decay experiments. So it seems that this is also very different from the strong, from, the, from QED, right? Here there is no particle mediating this force. So what's, is it possible also to describe the weak interaction in the framework of a perturbative quantum field theory? And the answer is yes. And the point is that, as, as opposed to the gluon and the photon, which has no mass, they are massless, the carriers of the weak interaction which are the W's and Z bosons, they are very massive. They have a mass of almost uh, 80 GeV, so 80 times the proton mass. Therefore, if you look at weak interactions at low energies, you will never resolve the W mass, right? You will just see a point interaction, as one see here. But if you go to very high energies, you will see that actually there is a particle propagating, like, just like the photon or the gluon, but that is very massive. So in the standard model, the weak interaction of Fermi can be seen as here, so we have, a, this is a neutron composed by down, up, down. This is a proton composed by down, up, up. And then the down quark emits a W boson, so transforms into an up quark, and the W boson then decays into an electron and a neutrino. So exactly as, as, as Fermi had modeled, but now in the context of a normalizable quantum field theory. So also in the, in the 70s, the fact that this theory was the right explanation of the weak interactions was verified. So for example, by which the discovery of neutral currents in neutrino scattering. So you have high energy beams of neutrinos, which you point to some, some target, and then you try to reconstruct the, the, the results of this collision. And one of the predictions of the standard model was that the neutrino, there will be neutral currents, in the sense that the neutrino will interact via neutral particle, a Z, and then hadrons will be formed, but no other charged leptons. 
So this is the neutrino. These are the traces of the of the hadrons forming the collision, but there is no charge yet left on. So it means that we have neutral currents. And let me also mention that the analysis of this kind of images was done among other places in Oxford, where we are speaking now, which had a crucial role in the discovery of the, of the neutral currents. So we have seen the electromagnetism, the strong interaction, and the weak interaction. What is the only missing piece? This is the, the Higgs mechanism, right? So what's the problem? Well, Julia will talk much more about this, so let me just explain it briefly. So in the problem is that in the standard model, its symmetries do, do, not, do not allow to have mass in the Lagrangian, right? So in particular, we have uh, electroweak, uh, uh, electroweak theory has a, a symmetry between left-handed and right-handed particles, which forbids that particles have a mass term in the Lagrangian. So what is the Higgs mechanism? This is a very clever trick to bypass this restriction, because in the Higgs mechanism, the laws are still symmetric, but the configuration that nature has chosen is not symmetric, right? Is this is the, the famous uh, Mexican hat potential, right? If you look at this potential, this potential is rotationally symmetric, right? Any di direction looks the same. However, the point where the Higgs field chooses to be is not, is not rotationally symmetric. It's just one point of all the possible uh, points of the, of the minima. So this is called a spontaneous asymmetry breaking, that laws are symmetric. However, the specific configuration of the vacuum is not. So thanks to the Higgs mechanism, the, all the particles in the standard model can acquire a mass. And as a crucial byproduct, if the energy of the interaction is high enough, we can excite the Higgs field, and the excitations of this Higgs field are the Higgs particle, which can be produced. And that's the, the ultimate test that this explanation is the right one, that the Higgs mechanism is a correct description of the mass in the standard model is the discovery of the, the Higgs boson. So it was predicted more than 50 years ago, but it took an impressive, you know, an impressive effort, both from theorists and experimentalists, to be able to develop calculations and the, and the machines to be able to finally vindicate this prediction and was discovered th three years ago at the Large Hadron Collider. Okay, so this is the standard model. Let me move to the second part of my, of my talk. How can we explore the high energy frontier? And this is the best machine we have nowadays to explore the high energy frontier is the Large Hadron Collider. So first of all, why do we care about high energy colliders? What they are suitable to explore really nature at the smallest possible distances? Well, we know from the Heisenberg principle, this is the, this famous equation here, that if we want to prove something with very small resolution, we need to have a proof which is, is very energetic, right? So if we want to resolve an object to very small scale, we need a particle which is, is very energetic. If not, it will be impossible. So a rule of thumb to convert distances in energies is the following. If I have a particle with one GeV, this corresponds to roughly a distance of uh, point, uh, point, point 0.2, 10 to the minus 5, 10 to the minus 15 meters. This is called 0 0.2 femtograms. Uh, this conversion sets the energy that we need to more or less uh, use to explore smaller and smaller objects, right? For example, a an atom has a length of about 10 to the minus 8 centimeters, right? So we need energies of the order of about, say, 0.05 MeV to explore its structure. If we, we want to prove the structure of an atomic nucleus, this is an object of about 10 to the minus 14 meters, we need energies of the order of 200 MeV, which makes sense because these are typical energies which are, uh, that are relevant for nuclear processes. If we want to go to even smaller distances, in particular to, to prove the structure of the proton, we need a particle which has energies in the GeV range. And this was precisely what the experiments in the slack 
at 10 GeV bin, because this is the right energy to be able to resolve the internal structure of the proton. If we want to go even further and explore, for example, if electrons and, or, or quarks have a further structure, then we need to prove energies, because say, a quark is known to have a radius of smaller than 10 to the minus 16 centimeters, so with energies above 2 TeV, right? So if we want to reach really the smallest possible distances, there is no other option but going to the TeV scale. And this is why the LHC is a collider that is exploring the TeV scale. Now, high-energy high colliders have been around for a while, right? The first collider was the, the Lawrence cycl cyclotron in Berkeley. And as you, as you can see, by the standards that we are now used to, this is, you know, it's almost a, a toy, right? It's only 1.5 meters, and the energy seems very small, uh, 15 MeV. But this was really crucial, right? Because this was the first time that in a control setup, we could accelerate particles and then explore its results. Without a cyclotron, without a collider, what is the problem? That we want to use, we, we can only use cosmic rays, for example, or other natural proofs. So we cannot control in detail which are the settings of our collision. And this is, of course, not good from the experimental point of view. We want to control everything. And in the case of a cyclotron, we have all the ingredients that we want to, to control the energy of the, of the collisions. And then this is a very clear proof of, the, of our ex experiment. So there have been many other colliders being built since then. I will just highlight three of them. One of these is the SLAC. This is a Stanford Linear Collider with a length of three kilometers. This is in, in, in California, with an energy of 90 GeV. This is a linear collider, which means that I collide electrons with positrons. This is a very clean experiment. However, its switch in energy is limited. There is also the Hera Collider in Hamburg, which was the first and up to date the only electron-proton collider ever built. So we have a high energy beam of electrons colliding with a high energy beam of protons. The length of six kilometers and the energy of 310 GeV. And then there was the Tevatron Collider in Chicago, which was before the LHC was built the highest energy collider of the world, which is a proton-proton collider with a tunnel of six kilometers and the energy of about two TeV. Each of these experiments has provided us crucial information of the standard model. But since uh, some, years, some years ago, we have the Large Hadron Collider. Large Hadron Collider is really an, it's an impressive machine, right? It's the most powerful accelerator ever built by mankind. So it's hosted at CERN in Geneva, which is the CERN is the European Laboratory for Particle Physics. So it's composed by a massive 27 kilometer long tunnel with four gigantic detectors in them. So this is, the, this is a photo taken of the LHC area. So this is the Geneva airport. For those of you that know it, this is the G Geneva Lake. This is where CERN is located. So my office used to be here for three years. And then underneath all this area, there is the Large Hadron Collider. So this is the, SP, the SPS. And then this is the, the LHC tunnel that goes almost from the airport to the lake and then to the Jura Mountains. The Alps are here on the other side of, of the lake. And at the LHC, all the protons are accelerated to the highest energies ever proved with the goal, as I was mentioning, to explore the laws of nature at the smallest distances ever achieved. So in the LHC, there are four massive detectors. They are called Atlas, CMS, ALICE, and LHCB. You can see, you know, by comparing with the size of a, of a, of, of a person, that they, are really, they are really massive, right? They are like six, seven, eight-story buildings of an amazing technology, right? I'm always still impressed that these things even manage to work, right? You have something which is huge as a building, everything wired and detectors, and, you know, 
it's manages to work and to provide impressive measurements. I think that te technologically is an impressive achievement. So as I will, I also wanted to mention that Oxford has played a central role both in building these detectors and now in operating them and you know, extracting the most of the LH information. The LH is an impressive machine, right? But without its detectors, which are able to explore, you know, are able to extract information from the beam collisions, the LH would be useless. So without a good detector, having very energetic protons is not very useful. So let me show how LH collision looks like. So this is a nice video done by the Atlas collaboration. So this is the LHC tunnel, right? So here we have the, <laughs> we have the protons which are accelerated at very, very high energies, right? So let's go inside the, 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 the beam. This is the proton composed by in this video by three quarks. And the proton is accelerated and at some point the beams will cross, right? And the beams will cross in the interaction points where the detectors are located. So you have the proton beams, they get close to each other and then eventually they collide and what the detector does is by reconstructing the traces of the collision, so by reconstructing the hadrons, the leptons, the muons, the missing energy, the, the aim is to reconstruct what has happened in this interaction point because this interaction point is a collision at very high energies. So therefore, here is precisely where we are proving nature at the smallest distances. So let me mention some facts about the LHC, which I think it, they are quite interesting. So first of all, LHC is one of the coldest places in the universe. In order to keep the LHC magnets, so LHC is based on semiconductor, semi, uh, superconductor magnets. In order to keep these magnets operating, we need very, very low temperatures. So the LHC will have a 30 kilometer tunnel, which is kept at only two degrees above absolute, absolute zero, which is, you know, it's colder than uh, interstellar space. Another interesting fact is this, it's one of the emptiest places in the solar system. Why? Because if in, in the beam where we have the protons running, there is even a very small density of air particles, the protons will collide with these particles and we will, no, we will not be able to explore the collisions in the detector. So we, we really a very, very high vacuum, right? As another interesting fact is that it's one of the hottest places in the galaxy. So for example, when we collide heavy ions, like for example, lead in the LHC, the temperatures that we, we generate, this is an example of these collisions, are billions of times larger than in the sun, right? This is the conditions similar to those in the very, very early universe. And also, a final fact that I think is really impressive is the amount of information that we extract from the LHC. In just one second, the LHC, in principle, could record one terabyte of data, just per second, right? So this is like having to record 10,000 sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica per second. So this is an impressive technological challenging to be able to efficiently scheme all this huge amount of information for the relevant events. So what the LHC has, has we have, what, what have we learned for the LHC up to now? So the first result has been the rediscovery of the standard model. What do I mean by rediscovery? Well, in the previous slides, I mentioned the discovery of uh, the JPSI, the Upsilon, the Z particles. The very first thing that the LHC had to do is to check that you know, everything was still there. And this might seem obvious, but it is not because this machine is technologically is very complex. So first of all, we need to validate that everything is in place, that the detectors, we understand the detectors, its performance. And also we need to check that our calculations, which have been tested before at lower energies, are also hold at very high energies because we are, this is a very large leap, a very large leap increasing the energies. So the, in this plot here by the CMS collaboration, this is a plot of the, this is proton-proton collisions into dimuons in this case. And each, each time we see a peak 
it means that there is a new particle that has been produced in this, this collision. So for example, if we look at around 3, 3 GeV, we see a, a peak, this is the JPSI, discovered in 73. If we look at above uh, 10, G, 10 GeV, we see the epsilon, this is bottom anti bottom meson, discovered in 77. And then at around 100 GeV, the, the Z mass, right? It was very nice to see that now at the LHC, we can quickly rediscover the other standard model and test our calculations with a very high degree of accuracy. And this is very important because predicting the standard model, as James was saying, predicting the standard model processes with very high accuracy could be the key to discover new physics at the LHC in the, in the following years. Of course, the <coughs> biggest achievement of the LHC has been the discovery of the Higgs boson. In this video here, I'm showing a collision in which a Higgs boson candidate is being, is being formed. It decays into four, into four leptons, so each of these four lines is a four lepton. This is one of the, the cleanest channels of the production and of decay, and Julia will talk about more about this later. And this is an extremely challenging measurement, right? Because it requires to disentangle a very small signal from a very large background. And to try to, to convey the message of how challenging these measurements are, let me show you a nice animation by the Atlas collaboration. So how we discover the Higgs from the practical point of view. So we begin without any data, right? And we want to measure two things. We want to measure the masses of diphoton pairs. So the Higgs can decay into pairs of photons. So if we, if we look at pair of photons and compute their invariant mass, if we see a peak, that will be a discovery of the Higgs boson. The same, the Higgs can decay into four leptons. So if I compute the mass of four lepton events and I see a peak which is not in the standard model, will be evidence for the Higgs, right? So let me begin to take data. So slowly, I begin to accumulate data, but here there is nothing, just a flat line, so just background. But as soon as I accumulate more and more data, right, something will appear. What will appear? There is a structure forming here, right? And what is this structure? This is a, there is a peak and 125 GeV. This is very interesting because this, is, this could be the mass of the Higgs boson. Now, is it really the Higgs boson? Could be something else, you know, statistical fluke? Well, what we need to do is to go to the other process, which is Higgs going into four leptons, and also take data here, right? So I'm taking data in the Higgs into four leptons. To begin with, I don't have anything, so I need to more and more data. Everything looks standard model, no Higgs. But eventually there are some events here that, hey, they are the mass of 125 GeV, and they are, not, they are not from ZZ, for example. This could be a Higgs. And the crucial thing is that this signal here has a peak at exactly the same mass as the one in the diphoton channel. This is a very strong check that this feature here, this feature here, correspond to the same object, right? This is the, the Higgs boson. And actually, at the, at the LHC, these two channels, two photons and four leptons, were the ones that we were able to, to claim a discovery in, Ju in July 2012. So it really, this is what, after this massive exercise, we can be happy because we, we, found, the, we found the Higgs boson. Now, okay, however, standard models is a theory with you know, an impressive success, and we should be really proud of it. It's one of the greatest success of modern science. However, despite its successes and you know, the discovery of Higgs boson, there are many crucial questions which are still left open. For example, the stability of the Higgs mass. Why the Higgs mass is what it is and not the mass of the, the, the Planck mass at very, very high energies? What is the data of dark matter or dark energy? Do all forces unify into a single one? So are strong interactions, weak interactions, and electromagnetism aspects of the same force, or they are not? Is there a theory of everything? What is the role of gravity? Because the gravity doesn't fit in the standard model, right? What is the origin of the matter-antimatter asymmetry? So there are many questions which are really crucial that have been not, that are left open by the standard model. 
And the interesting thing is that there are various theories that go beyond the standard model. And many of these can be tested at the LHC. So the LHC is a unique tool to scrutinize these theories which go try to attempt some of the limitations of the standard model. One popular example that you might have, have heard about is called is supersymmetry. So in supersymmetry, each particle has a super partner. So we have talked about quarks, neutrinos, the force carriers, and the Higgs boson. So in supersymmetry, we have the standard model, and we have another copy of all the particles, with the only difference is that the spin differs by one half. So you have the quarks, which are scalars. They are not, not fermions anymore. We have the leptons, and then we have the, the supersymmetric version of the Higgs bosons and also of the Higgs, which is called the Higgs eno. And among all the interesting <laughs> predictions of supersymmetry, it predicts that all the three forces, so a strong, weak, electromagnetic, if you go to very high energies, they become just a single, a single force. So this the, what is called a force unification, which is, of course, a very attractive theory of a, of a fundamental theory of nature. However, as of today, there are no hints of BSN physics <laughs> at the LHC. However, in just a few months, the LHC will restart at even higher energies, and we have 10, 15, 20 years to keep exploring the high energy frontier and try to understand all these pressing and very important questions. So I think that it's very, it's very likely that we'll have many new breakthroughs can be around the corner. Okay, so in, la in the last five minutes, I want to mention what's next, right? What's, what's beyond the LHC? And this is important because in high energy physics, building these facilities, since it's really at the cutting edge of, of technology, it takes long time scales. Right? Both from the civil engineering, to the technology, to the textures, to the physics. So it's something that even if we are only at the beginning of the LHC program, we need to begin to think what comes next. So this is the schedule of the LHC for the next 25 years. So as I was mentioning, the LHC has delivered a huge amount of interesting results. But we are just at the very beginning of the program, right? So we have, seen, we have taken data for three years at 7 TV and 8 TV. The LHC has, uh, has undergone a long shutdown of two years. And now we are here. We are about at the beginning of the, what's called run two, where the energy has increased from 8 TV, from 13 and 14 TV. So there will be a period of about eight years of running at 14 TV. And then there will be an, a very important upgrade in which the LHC will be turned into the high luminosity LHC. What's the high luminosity LHC? It's LHC in which the, the number of collisions per bunch crossing will be increased very substantially, so increasing the chances of finding interesting events. So we have, have worked for the next 20 years to really try to explore the high energy frontier and the LHC is the best machine that we have for this. And something which is crucial, especially in the lack of any evident signal of BSM theory, is to try to sharpen our understanding of QCD with interactions, electromagnetism, because this could be the key of new discoveries, right? New discoveries could appear as a subtle deviation from a standard model prediction. So the, the better we can compute things uh, with high precision, the closer could be to a new discovery in, at the Large Hadron Collider. And of course, it's essential to have a very close interplay between theory and experiment, right? And two of the central ingredients of the LHC program for the next 20 years, well, first of all, precision measurements of the Higgs couplings, and Julia will talk about this in her talk, and then the searches for dark matter at the LHC, and Julia again will tell us about this. So as I was saying, in about 2022, we have to upgrade the LHC and turn it into a high luminosity machine. What's a high luminosity? As I was mentioning, is a, now in the high luminosity LHC, the number of collisions per bunch crossing will be much higher. 
which means that the chances of finding interesting events will be larger. Of course, this has challenges because if you have more collisions, you have say, more signal events, but also many more background events, right? This, is, you know, you see this looks extremely messy. You have to extract uh, interesting signal in a, in a collision where we have almost 200 collisions, which are really they are background noise and need to be removed. So this requires a complete upgrade of the LHC detectors. And also here, Oxford is playing a central role, in particular in the case of Atlas, in building the new Atlas, Atlas Silicon Tracker. And so let's try to think even bigger. So what comes in the next 20, 30 years? Well, as I was mentioning, the planning of these facilities is always takes place in a very long time scale, right? Because we are at the cutting edge of technology, of civil engineering, and you know, there are problems that when these machines are planned, they don't have a solution. So we need to think with lot, lot, uh, a lot of time. So in particular, now we are discussing whether the next big machine could be a 100 TV collider. So seven times higher than the Large Hadron Collider. Also with electron-positron and electron-proton modes. So this, this is called tentatively a future circular collider. And this is the plan of a possible site. This could be, uh, again, at, in, in Geneva. So this is the LHC tunnel. This would be the 100-kilometer 100, 100 long tunnel where this FCC could be built. So you see that it's quite impressive that as compared to the FCC, the LHC seems very small, despite being an incredibly large machine. Also, sites China is very interested in this kind of projects, and there is a proposal for a FCC in, in China there. And now, in the context of various working groups, there is a worldwide effort trying to understand both the technical feasibility and the physics motivation of this, of this proposal. There are also other ways that we could explore the high frontier. For example, there are plans to build linear colliders where you have electrons and positron collisions at very high energies. For example, there is the plan of having click in Geneva. Click would be a linear, linear tunnel that, go, that goes from the French part of the French area to almost to Devon, crossing all the Geneva area. These are cleaner machines because electrons are fundamental constituents, so there's less background noise. However, they have a greatly reduced, reduced reach in, in energy. So I think that I've tried to convey that this is really a fascinating time to be in, in particle physics, that the standard model has been an incredibly successful theory, and that the LHC will be the best tool we have to explore the high, high energy frontier for the next 20 years. So I think that you should really stay tuned for news for the LHC, because I'm sure that there will be many interesting results from us, and you will be happy to hear of them about. So thanks for your attention. <laughs>